Hi folks, this is Timothy Harvey for Family Movie Nightmare. This is the second of two episodes where we cover the fourth season of Channel Zero, The Dream Door. If you haven't heard the first part of our discussion, you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast, iTunes, podcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening to Family Movie Nightmare. Welcome to Family Movie Nightmare. And we're back! Yay! Hello again, this is Family Movie Nightmare, the podcast where a father and his spawn discuss all forms of horror media. I'm Nikki Kay, the spawn in this equation. I'm Timothy Harvey, their father. And we are back with the second part of our discussion of Channel Zero's fourth season, uh, the Dream Door, which is based on The Hidden Door by Charlotte Bywarder. And the first half of this this episode, we talked a lot about Pretzel Jack, who is in many ways the visual villain of, certainly in advertising and certainly in, in what the first three episodes expect you to believe is the villain. But mm-hmm. dun dun dun! Third act twist! Yes. <laughs> and... We ended that episode talking about if you are a studious horror viewer, you probably pegged him immediately as the creepy dude across the street. The uh, the Scream-esque hidden villain, Ian the Neighbor, who does not know how to hold a cat correctly. <laughs> I should have fucking known. The second I saw this fucker not supporting his cat's butt, I should have known that he was nefarious and no good. You have to hold the tushy. They don't feel very... (laughs) Anyways, for the first three episodes, Ian shifts from just the guy who is sympathetic to Jill and, and willing to see her point of view without contradicting it the same way her... Contradicting or questioning it the same way that her psychiatrist and husband try to kind of bring her back to reality. And because of her trauma, Jill as a character sees that kind of conflict as negation. She sees it as, uh, in her words, you aren't listening to me. And so she is attracted in a very platonic sense to Ian, um, Because he is willing to take her at face value and engage with her within the narrative of my (laughs) imaginary friend was released from the basement and now he's murdering people. Which, for the record, is kind of hard to buy. (laughs) So he plays a a very... um, he plays a nice role. He he plays Uber driver a couple times. He is a supportive character in her life. And then by episode four, he has convinced her that he, he has been... No, episode three is when he reveals, I can do the same shit you can do. And not only can I do it, I can teach you how to do it effectively too. Mm-hmm. And we are, by episode four moving into that arc where Jill is like, yes, please tell me how to fucking do this. 
And that is when the shift, the end of episode four is when we get the mighty reveal that Ian is kind of a dick. And not only is he a dick, but the human villain that Jill has been, been thwarting up to this point in the season, her father, was actually trying to warn her that Ian's a fucking dick. Yeah, so Ian is uh, a character who kind of telegraphs his... Okay, so there's this thing called economy of character. Which mm. is you only see so many characters on uh, on film or on stage or in a book. And, you know, if, if, if there's a hidden villain, odds are good that villain is going to come out of a character you have already met. This is a thing that sometimes can work very, very well. And sometimes it can be like, well, clearly they're the bad guy. And so with Ian's first appearances all the way up to the point where it's revealed that he is a very, very warped character, he, uh, leaving aside, you know, his, his cat handling skills, um, <laughs> he is, he's a little too helpful. He's a little too understanding. He's a little too friendly. He's now, certainly there are people like this in, in the world. I have met more than one person in my life where I'm like, you are just a little too quick to think that we're going to be friends. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is outgoing people happen and really nice, pleasant people who are very friendly happen. This is, this is good. But... And he's also just kind of awkward. There's a, there's a, there's a something about it where it's like, he's friendly in the, I don't know how to social correctly way. Like he doesn't sure. realize he's, he's, he's kind of, crossing boundaries and maybe if jill wasn't so in need of a friend right now she would be like okay nice to meet you bye right yeah he's he's a he's the kind of person who stands a little too close mm -hmm. and you're like okay you can take about three steps backwards but unfortunately because he is so odd and so a little too standing a little too close by the time it becomes revealed that he is, in fact, the actual big bad of the story, it's a there's not a whole lot of surprise to it, which is which is not not everything needs to be a surprise. It's okay to sit there and go, oh, the creepy neighbor, in a kind of harmless, creepy way, turns out to be in a very creepy, harmful kind of way, and that that's that's okay. I mean, it, it there wasn't a big a lot of surprise to the character in that regard, except. Mm -hmm. Um, they do a pretty good job, I thought, of giving him interesting character moments on his own. A lot of them revolved around eating. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> because it turns out, of course, that if it's you use these abilities to create these doors and the things beyond the doors, you are requiring, you require energy to do it. Yeah, and you're burning calories at a very, at a... At a... You're fucking yourself over, right? And Jill is not. You know, Jill's not doing it on the level that he is, so she's not doing the damage to herself that that he does, because he generates quite a few uh, things, and and as we re come to discover, he's lots, many. Um, the uh, the little color, the the color kids, or what is it? What do they call them? <gasps> the color kids, the crayon crew. The Cran crew, yeah, I. Uh... Which are oh god, they're so wasted. Yeah. They're so cool. This is one of those. They, I think, are the biggest uh, disappointments when it comes to the showrunners' use of of 
what's at their disposal. The crayon crew doesn't get used nearly enough. They have such cool designs and they just kind of show up in the background like, we're kind of creepy. Yeah. I guess. They have a cup, they've got a couple of good scenes, but overall they're just sort of background things. And mm-hmm. kind of sentinels and and guardians of the of the housing development that they end up being trapped in in the latter part of the well really yeah. the last episode yeah the whole last episode is just hanging out in this um abandoned neighborhood uh that's been that's halfway through construction and has just kind of been left to rot the candle crew i think is kind of a a reply to the misuse of the children in season three because they're you know they're tiny little sentinels that don't have any real dialogue and they aren't really characters they're just there to be scary and but they're actually kind they're actually effective like if that thing was just standing there while you're trying to have a conversation with another character that would give some tension to the scene because it's fucking thing made out of wax and it's staring at me. Can you get that thing to turn around? I'm trying to form sentences and it's staring into my soul. That would have been cool, but they weren't really used like that. Um, they're just kind of there. They have one good scene where they attack that security guard. Yes, that was that, see, that was fine, but it was dark. And so mm-hmm. it was just a whole bunch of kids mugging a guy. And we didn't get... We didn't even get to see, like, what they did to him because they were all in the lower part of the frame and blood was flying up and it was a little, it was a little corny. Well, but I will also say that that sometimes, and this show did a fairly good job of that, is that a lot of the violence happens uh, slightly off frame, so you're seeing pieces of it coming into frame, which I thought was actually a fairly effective way to, to have things happen because in some respects especially going back to that first episode there was so so much that that worked so well there Jill's reaction to what's happening there is more important than what physically is happening Yes, and and I think that they tried to do that to some degree with her again in the final episode Mm -hmm. with the Cran crew and it doesn't quite work as well but I think there's a claustrophobia to the first episode that once you get out into this housing development where it's very open, I mean, even Mm -hmm. though there's a lot of houses to hide in the, the you're in a much more open space ultimately. And it ends up losing some of that claustrophobia and that sense of being trapped in a space with something you don't understand. Yeah. And, and on the point of claustrophobia, there seems to be two different takes on violence there's the violence you've you've said where it happens off screen and it's it's um the character reacting to it is the focus or the fact that the audience can't see it so they have to imagine it and of course whenever you give a person the ability to imagine something terrifying they are going to do it more effectively than you the the um, artisan of the visuals are going to be able to the more mm-hmm. the more ambiguity, the more the audience is able to to, to terrify themselves. Um, there's that form of horror, and then there's the so close that you can feel the blood splattering your own face, framing, and we get right. that with a lot of 
moments where where Jack is killing Jason and where Tallboy is killing Ian's father at the end of episode four. That gore eye shot. They loved the fact that they could, they got the shot of the of the fingers going past the eyeball and popping it out. They just loved showing me that th- that shit. And every goddamn recap. I and ugh. <laughs> Oh, it's not nearly as bad as as the the knife going over the the eyes of that chick from the fucking nineteen ten ancient ass um, surrealist film. I still can't watch that. It will <laughs> probably always squick me, but it's still bad. I. I I loved that they they hinted at eye horror in episode one. Like, oh oh, are we gonna do it? Are we gonna are we gonna stab Jason in the? Are we gonna do it? No. And then in episode four, they're like, ah, oh, we did it! Oh, he's a fucking eyeball down to his face! Ah! <laughs> oh, we got you! We're gonna put that in the last episode recap every time, man. Because <laughs> it was good. It's good effects. It looked oh, yeah. real. Yeah fucking scary mm-hmm. anyways those are the those are the two kinds of flavors and while i can appreciate them not wanting to overuse the hyper realistic gore that honestly they might not have had the budget to do more than the choice times that they did it uh the crayon crew's not scary it could have been i don't know the whole all of episode six is not scary the they don't use the space effectively. There is something inherently terrifying about abandoned, s- malformed, unfinished construction sites at night. There's some... Going back to Silent Hill, Silent Hill 3, there's an entire uh, section where you are going through a a apartment building that is not an apartment building, a business building with several floors under construction. And in, in Silent Hill two, there's a lot of things in the middle of construction that have been left to decay. This isn't uncharted territory. There's a lot of things that they could have drawn from and they didn't. They, they set the big showdown in the middle of the day. I, it completely robbed Ian of his effectiveness. I was never fucking scared of this guy. I just wanted to give him a wedgie. <laughs> See, I didn't want to give him a wedgie. I just wanted to smack him. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wanted to smack him with a brick uh, <laughs> because he's, well, okay, so... <clears throat> For a show that has dealt with craziness, with madness in in various ways, some of them more successful than others, mm-hmm. um, here is a character who is, he's crazy. He yes. is, this, this would be an example of criminally insane. This would be His somebody. His version of reality is so distorted that there's just no reasoning with him. Oh, yeah. He is somebody who has convinced himself that he loves his half-sister in far from a platonic way. And there's very much a, you know, there's a clear desire for incest 
mm-hmm. in his worldview. Uh, she's not a big fan of this idea for several very good reasons, not least of which the incest, but also the he's crazy and is trying to kill the people that she cares about, like her husband. Um, you know, little things, little little things that get in the way of most relationships. You wanna, you wanna, you wanna kill my husband? Yeah, let's <laughs> let's, let's hook up. Um, we're family. Oh yeah, let's hook up. So it's, but at the same time, he is such. Okay, so on one hand, he's clearly broken by whatever relationship he had with his father. Okay, there's something there's something flawed, but we don't get we don't get the detail from that relationship that really I felt again, coming back to I felt that we needed more of the father. Um yeah. but but leaving that aside, he's clearly crazy. He's clearly mad. This is not a, he has, you know, he's not dealing with the, the, the real kind of attempting, attempting to deal with, you know, uh, schizophrenia like they did last season. This is somebody who's crazy, crazy. Uh, he's, he's dangerous to himself and others uh, by just the nature of his broken mind. Uh, yes. And on top of that, he's a, he's a crazy person with a superpower. And he feels justified. He feels he has convinced himself of, of of certain warped realities that justify enacting violence on other people. He is right. feel he has felt victimized, and because of this victim, uh, this self ascribed victimhood, he he feels that he's allowed to do awful things. And as we didn't. By episode four, we know that he is a piece of shit, but it's not until the end of episode five that we realize what, how big of a piece of shit he is to the point that he has murdered the people that he is, he had said he was renting the house from instead of renting the house from them. They're in the backyard now. He fucking murdered them. Yeah. He's, he's the kind of character who... His 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 feeling of being a victim feels like he justifies him making victims of other people, yeah. and there is nothing in that mindset that evokes sympathy. No, once you have decided that your his his he wants to be near Jill so badly that he feels justified in killing two innocent older people like he he straight up tells the detectives they were gonna fucking die soon anyways i mean they were super old and it's awful that's absolutely the the lack of empathy that is shown to other people you know tells the audience don't waste your empathy on this person now this is not to say that he does not have some effective moments because he does have some effective moments when Tallboy takes out the police officers and he ends up back on the driveway covered in blood looking at Tom <laughs> and, <laughs> and saying, did you really think that I was just going to let myself get arrested? I mean, that actually was a... Per- that I mean, scene was pretty good. That Behold, was pretty good. And whatever happens next is your fault, Tom. That was pretty good too. He has some he has some super villain moments that are enjoyable. I honestly 
no. Ian is an enjoyable character. His actor, let me scroll up here. Stephen Robertson. Stephen Robinson? Robertson. Hey, Steve. Steve, you did a great job. Kudos to you, Steve. I enjoyed you. So Ian is, while he's he he has these super effective villain. moments. Yeah, he's yeah. You're right. He, it, it's he has super villain speeches, and that he, he's he, he's the guy from Incredibles. You know what? There's a certain there's a certain argument to be made for that. He's has, especially because the show changes from horror at the halfway point into something which could easily be a comic book yeah fight and that's not and that's not that's not necessarily not not to not to bash what happens in the second half because it's engaging it's extremely engaging i enjoyed it but it's a definite shift in tone and when you consider mm-hmm. that it does basically end up in a let's your creation fight my creation and and then in the and then in the end, Ian is killed not only by well, he's killed by a knife and the power of love, and then he's killed <laughs> by his own creation. This is these are kind of there's there's so many tropey things that happen in the final episode that I still managed to enjoy while my brain was going. And that's killed by the power of love, and that's hoist on your own petard, and that's, you know, I'm clicking down right. my, my mental checklist here. It's and... the execution that elevates these things that are that are extremely predictable mm-hmm. and and well worn. Now, I will say there there's there's two scenes involving babies in this. Uh-huh. The Ooh. first Bef- one. No, no, no. Let's hold hold on. Before we move away from Ian, I do want to say there's there is a scene that I thought were was horrific within this. It was still, you know, superhero-y, very kind of silly. Oh, he's so crazy, he doesn't see why this is absolutely terrifying. But mm. the reveal that he has not only killed dad, but kept dad to show Jill in this like I I have brought you a dead thing to show you I love you kind of oh, yeah, misguided okay. thing um elevated a step higher in the oh my god why scale of events is that he has also created a pound a, a, like a a small murder of of tiny little black pugs. And the tiny little black pugs have all escaped from their cages and are all in adorable little sweaters. And one of them cannot breathe. One of them is having the most, the hardest time in the. Whoever mixed this show went to the director and was like, I have an idea. Uh huh. You know the scene where there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of pugs? What if one of them really can't breathe and it's one of the loudest sounds in the scene? It's just this little pug going... <laughs> while it eats a corpse. Yeah, it's it's a... It is... It really kind of displays the depths of Ian's madness when it's like, you know, here's, here's the father who hurt his boat. I killed him for you. 
and that's you know that's just wrong uh and and it's creepy but you know the sound design the sound design and the visual design this is this is one of i don't know this i don't i don't know if i want to say this exactly but it's it's certainly it might be the prettiest of all the shows and i mean that in a positive way a lot of times yes. a lot of times i can say that sure was pretty and that's not a compliment um <laughs> But no, this this show is visually very lush. This season has got oh, there's the, the, their use of color, their use of shadow, uh, their use of framing. I thought it was shot beautifully. Of, of, and it's... of light creating different colors. The fact that mm-hmm. every single time they are in the dream door using a flashlight, it is not just a stark change between black and and gold. There are tones of greens and blues. And and a stark yellow that that's that becomes this rich gold in the center. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very very well done, and the sound design is really really good. Technically, uh, even even if there wasn't some really interesting storytelling going on here, technically, the show is is probably the uh, well all, the first and second season were very very strong technically as well, and there were moments of the third season that were too. But overall, this is the way this was shot, the way it was, the, the sound is mixed, the way that they structured the editing. It's very, very well done. Um, I think I think it's let down, it is let down a little bit by the shift in tone at the halfway mm-hmm. mark. But even so, the technical aspects, how the the show is shot, um, there's well, a lot okay. of forethought there that is very evident in the care that's taken to always associate green with certain feelings, mm-hmm. always associate red with certain feelings, the the use of, of reflections and characters and actual physical characters in the relation to the reflections of other characters it's mm-hmm. so deliberate and the the twisting the 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 turning the character the the camera in circles the use of lighting and the distortion within the the sound effects the there's a lot of the sound shifts from ambient and um i always forget the word for sounds that are part of the scene that the characters are hearing and sounds that are just for the non-diegetic sounds. Okay. Um, there are, there are certain sounds, especially within horror that are non-diegetic in that, you know, the, the, the music sting of before the jumps of the jump scare. Right. There's a lot of screaming, distorted kind of electronic, um, high notes that are hit during this season that are extremely effective. And there's no way the characters are hearing it. There's some really interesting musical choices throughout the season. And some of them are really effective and some of them are not so much. And I was really, especially by the time I got to the sixth episode, I was kind of finding a lot of the music jarring. There's a scene where they are running. They are (laughs) running to the house, chasing Ian and they're playing music that's got this very electronic sound. And all I could think was, this is 1990s bad science fiction music. Yes, and, it's the crew running to fuck him up. Like, it was just like... And I'm like, oh no, what are you guys doing? And I was just like, oh, okay, well, uh, okay, not the choice I would have made. 
but okay, whatever. And the fact that the fact that Pretzel Jack is there and he's just on the same level as Tom now as an extra character that's hanging out with Jill. Yeah, it's it's that's that was one of the weaker areas and overall overall i really enjoyed the season and mm-hmm. but there are some areas that 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 kind of kind of didn't exactly work i mean there's you know there the baby thing so the first oh, yes, the first the time baby. we see let's talk about the baby so there's two baby moments in this in this season and the first is jill creating or attempting to create a baby with the power of her mind which i do not recommend Are you talking about the time she did it with Ian or the time she did it with Tom? I'm talking about the time she does it with Tom. Okay, I don't believe that that was a conscious choice. Well, it's... it's, uh, Even so, um, I have issues with that scene on one hand because it almost works to me. It almost works as a horror thing. Because the uh-huh. and that's that's the reactions of the characters, yeah, yeah. The thing itself, the the, it was almost. I. I found it very effective, but then again, I hate David Lynch and think that Eraserhead, the movie, is a piece of garbage. Well, see, I love David Lynch, but I don't <laughs> like Eraserhead um, because Eraserhead is is. I don't, you're not, I don't think you're supposed to like Eraserhead. I don't think. It's oh a no! Movie, it's a, I don't it's, think it's a movie that's meant to be liked. There's there's some inherent horror of having created something that is going to die. It's yeah. And there's, I think, uh, from a parental point of view, there's something that they, they they don't they okay they don't have time to mine this in depth. But there's a whole separate story there that I think as as a you know you can look at and then and maybe it's not a horror story a traditional horror story it's a drama or it's a with with the internal horror of knowing that you've created a life that is not going to survive which has got all sorts of you know human human horrors internal pain life real life pain there they this is not that kind of show right um, so there's, there's a lot with that scene that made me, I felt almost worked really, really well, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, in, but in many ways that's meant to kind of be a visual horror scene with emotional overtones, right? Mm-hmm. And then we get the baby at the end when everything, oh, ha- everyone has survived and so everything weak. is good. And the ending is so weak. And then they they have the baby, and it's a it's a real baby that apparently they made on the, the, the traditional biological way, and then of course it has its own dream door powers, and it shows up, and it's like, okay, guys, you could have ended the film, ended the film, and you could have ended the series before that scene. You should have it's... ended the series because because that was almost a. Um, that was the most predictable moment of the show. That was the, as soon as I saw there was a baby, I was like, okay, so the baby's going to have the same powers too. Yup. And it's going to manifest far faster than any other child previously, I guess. And unfortunately, 
that reinf- and the, the the obliviousness of Tom and Jill to this and the potential of this apparently hit with something that so so a significant chunk of the of this season is about the relationship between Jill and Tom mm. and her trust issues and him doing something that I wanted to shake him so hard. Oh god, his fucking <laughs> So so okay, and, and and admittedly, this is this is something that comes from some okay, as <clears throat> as a person who has uh we talked about we talked about mental health a lot last season, but mm-hmm. and I can't but using using my own depression as an example. Once I get to know somebody, at some point relatively early on in our becoming friends, the topic of my depression will come up. Not because I like talking about it a lot, but because it's part of me and they have it's something that it's fair warning, I guess, or, or just knowing me and, and having a sense of, of what's going on in my head and why I might not respond to something right away. Or might, there might be a, you know, I may not want to be as social as, as they might think I was a week before or whatever it is. Fairly you early give the on. the context. You, they'll, they'll know that this is part of me. Yeah. And fairly early on, they'll know that, you know, they'll know my history. They'll know about you know, I've been married, I've been divorced, I have, you know, a family, I've got these, you know, I've got a kid, I've got all these, these are things you're going to know. I don't hide this stuff. And so I have a hard time when I see a character who's hiding something they shouldn't be hiding. Previous relationships come back to bite you if you are not honest about them with your partner. Yeah. This is just a thing and and life lesson to anyone who's listening. <laughs> if you have a big secret about a previous relationship, it's going to come out, okay? It just is. <laughs> just especially if you're going to be in an emotional relationship, that is when you overshare. That is when those are the people that you tell shit to, especially if they have told you a billion times, I'm going to therapy because my dad lied about having an extra extra family and it is a huge amount of baggage the fact that this character tom was like okay honey i hear you i am going to bring up the fact that i understand this very well and it affects my vision of my my understanding of you as a person constantly i am also going to hide a previous relationship from you and fuck off to an undisclosed place in the middle of the goddamn night with big huge open ass windows and a random chick that you can totally see me speaking to if you followed me like a creeper which I know that you will probably do because you have baggage dumbass you fucking set yourself up, asshole. Exactly. He set himself up so badly, and he didn't have to. This is an example of a manufactured conflict. This is a this is this is where they get the writing wrong this season. And I'm sorry for there's some there's some good character moments that come out of it, mm-hmm. but the the essential conflict is so 
the essential conflict struck me as being out of character for the relationship these two are supposed to have. And throughout yeah. most of the season, they do have. And so, because, I mean, basically, if you think that you fathered a child, which is Tom's thought, and it was... Pro- first, okay, he's got nothing to be ashamed of here. There's no, there's no. no shame. No, admittedly, we all look at these things differently. But he, they were not together. This is not, he wasn't cheating on, on Jill. This is not a, a thing where he was doing something wrong to her. He thinks he fathered a child. He turns out to be wrong, which I actually thought was a, a really great thing the writers did do. It's like, no, no, he's not the father. Oh, really? Okay. You know. Because and it we're never been... shown, we're never shown the father, the actual dad of the kid. But ultimately, it doesn't matter, and that's the inherent issue. The, okay, Tom is so blind to the impact of what this secret realistically is going to have. I mean, this is this is an inevitable thing. This is a yeah. you should have seen this coming. This is a how could you not see this coming? This is a oh, for the love of God, it's coming. Can't you, yeah. are you blind? If it was just going to the therapist or a quote unquote therapist, there's, I, I really enjoyed the different, um, the, the different approaches to trauma management that we see very, very often in media that, that is about the psych, about psychology and the psychological and deeper thinking. You only see one brand, uh, either you see, either you see science versus the church mm-hmm. or you see science versus mysticism and instead we have we have a um we have a, a pretty typical approach to psychotherapy we have the uh we have ian's um oh he fucking name drops what what branch of psychology he actually is uh young ian yeah um, and then we have the uh, white chick hippie variant that is mostly a lot of metaphors that don't go anywhere and lying in a yeah. pool. And I, I enjoyed those the implication that different modes of psychology work for different people. They find different they they find. Um, solutions through different modes and none of them are shown to be inherently bullshit although uh water therapy lady does get the the shortest end of the stick in both her character writing and the fact she gets offed um yeah she's a she's she's a piece of work she's a piece of work um now steven weber's psychiatrist uh, his what I really enjoyed about his character is that he is, he, he's doomed, but he's doomed by being a rational person. Yeah. His, his reaction to Jill's increasingly, from, from, from an objective viewpoint, her story increasingly gets crazier. Yeah. You know, and, and as a, as a professional as somebody who is attempting to help his patient, he quite justifiably is going, no, no, no. You are, you know, 
Because in the real world, this stuff doesn't happen. And he's dealing with a... He's he's a bit of an abrasive character to some degree, but at the same time, he you can understand that. I found him to be not the most sympathetic character by the end of our arc with him, but I actually appreciated the fact that they're treating him not as a bad doctor. Right. He's legitimately trying to help authoritarian, her. Authoritarian either. Like he has a he takes authoritarian tones with her, but he isn't unreasonable in trying to bring her back from what sounds like a psychotic break. Right. And and as somebody who has had um I had a couple of different therapists, uh, there's there's sometimes you do go to a doctor for that. You yes. depending on what you need as a patient Having a doctor who has a more of authoritarian bent might be what you need. And that actually yes. might be one of the reasons you're going to that doctor because you need that voice of authority because some people right. need to have that. And some people don't, so they go to see a different doctor. Or the doctor maybe tailors their approach because some doctors do multiple things, obviously. Um, so so I actually appreciated him and I felt bad for him when he happened yeah. to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when... P-Jack crawls through the window and ganks him. Yeah, and his, his reaction to this is like, hang on, <laughs> the crazy is real? But going back to Tom, when it comes to Tom, he isn't just like going to water therapy girl lady because he needs some time alone floating in a pool. He's going to her because he's making irrational decisions that he knows are wrong. Like he knows that stalking this, this woman is morally bad. And he knows that he, he should not be stealing Jill's old toys and giving them to who he believes is his son. And so he's going to someone that he has met through uh, through knowing Sarah Winters and is trying to find counsel in her. He's trying to go, I know I shouldn't have done this, but I have justification. I think it's my kid and I don't know what to do. He's making, he knows he's making irrational decisions. And I think that there's a level of shame to the fact that he is doing that, that saves this otherwise extremely, like, shitty jealousy plot that is needless conflict. If they didn't add this extra layer of a man who is going through something that he has no coping mechanisms for, and is, it is causing him to make these passionate decisions that are against his normal moral character if he if if water therapy lady wasn't such a piece of shit maybe she'd be able to tell him you shouldn't be doing this this is what you should be doing instead but instead all of her coping skills are horseshit and also she's jacking it to her patients like an asshole yeah generally speaking if your doctor is perving on you get another doctor just just you know basically i need to go feed my fishes lady that's a clam (laughs) oh yeah Uh uh-huh yeah it's i I, I know for for me i was just really really frustrated by the fact that the conflict shouldn't have existed to begin with it should have Mm -hmm. been because everything else about 
how Tom feels about Jill, how he fights for Jill, how he fights for the relationship, how he he deals with the craziness that has come along. And, you know, I think there's a line where he says, you've got some shit you're dealing with, and it just happens to come out into the real world. Um, I thought was, <laughs> I saw that line, listened to that line, and I was like, you know what? I really love this bit where he's sitting going, I'm, I'm standing by you no matter what. And, and you get these moments and yet you deal with a character who this conflict shouldn't exist. He should have, before they got married, the conversation this should have would been have been, aired out. Yeah. I, I think I have, you know, I, I think I have, no, he would have said, he would have said, I have a child with someone else. I don't see them. I wish I could, you know, the intimacy these characters display in so many ways, the, the emotional intimacies, um, and we get some very physical intimacies in the show. It's the sexiest, oh, God, it's certainly so much the sexiest sex. of, yeah. of the shows. And these are two beautiful people. I mean, these are, yeah. these are attractive actors and they are, so, you know, they're probably like, <laughs> clearly we have to show off these two. They look great. Just... Uh, but, and, and, and honestly, for somebody who finds I... it's, it's really easy to shoot a sex scene poorly mm -hmm. um and they did yep. a pretty they did a pretty good job of actually making these kind of intimate sexy moments that actually played as sexy moments versus yeah you know something that was deliberately meant to be eye candy or yes uh a, you know a, a prurient it wasn't kind soft of core porn like skeevy it was it was right. very it was very realistic like i really felt like i was maybe unjustly watching two people who were in love having sex. Sure. And and this is something that I, I think the chemistry between the actors yes. was actually really strong. Mm -hmm. And I think that this really helped make, especially in the second half, where it had gone away from the horror and getting into the more the the comic booky kind of format, mm -hmm. uh, the, the relationship between... And at that point, we're also dealing with the the recovery of the relationship from the revelation that Tom didn't tell her this and that he believed this and all this stuff that yeah. I thought I thought was unnecessary. Um, yeah, I wish that we were given. I think for I think that's something that would save this plot because I really do like it. I like seeing that that Tom isn't just one dimensional. I will follow you wherever you go, Jill. I instead he ha he makes his own mistakes. He he is an imperfect human being. Um, I wish that we had gotten uh, some about his past to explain why he has this shame in the sense mm, that he yeah. does not feel like he can he can let anybody outside of this bubble of Sarah Winters and um, water water therapy later lady that he met through Sarah giving birth to their ch what he believes is their child. I wish that. We he had some justification that was shown to the audience for why he feels he can't have these conversations, like something that happened to him and his mm -hmm. family that that made a complex. Yeah, and honestly, if we had if we'd spent the time with that instead of with the the child that isn't his, um, there's time for that kind of story for him. So I think I think in in, in terms of writing. That's that's something that bothered me 
quite a bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. Yeah. I just wanted to reach out and grab him and go, why are you being so stupid? <laughs> You're playing into the writer's hands. Exactly. And when, when, and when, it, yeah, it was very much a hand of the writer. You know, we, we need to have this conflict. And my response was, no, you don't. On the topic of things that were disappointing, um, I want to cover Tallboy, and then I want to cover all of episode six and the, <laughs> and the decision to make it during the day. Why is it? Okay, so Tallboy is described by Ian as extremely tall with a bulbous head. What we get is a tall dude, just a normal-ass tall dude. He's maybe pushing seven feet. He's he's just barely taller than the tall the other taller like normal characters in the show, and his head's just a normal size goddamn head, and he has a, he has slight prostheses add to to extenu, ex, accentuate his forehead and cheekbones, added to lots and lots of of makeup around the eyes to make them seem more hollow. Tallboy's not scary. Well, and he's also meant to resemble Ian's father to a degree. And because, I mean, he looks very, very much like Greg Henry, who played Ian, Ian's father. He's got. Really? Because yeah. he's so fucking pudgy. You look at the hair, that the hairstyle that, that Ian's I'd father to, has. I'd have to compare the two. To me, he was visually meant to be a version of Ian's father. And but perhaps... compare that to the narrative that I built around <laughs> Pretzel Jack. I don't think that visually it 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 registers. With Pretzel Jack, I mean he's he, it doesn't have Pretzel Jack is is created out of something much more innocent than Tallboy is. Tallboy is created Fair. much more out of a Ian's Ian's fears and his relationship with his father and all the things that are part of what makes Ian broken and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so Tallboy has evokes a certain amount, I think, of of wish fulfillment in mm-hmm. in creating creating almost a father figure that is yet a boy, which is odd. I mean, you know, there's a there's an image there's a basic immaturity to Ian. There's a basic it's, childlike selfishness to Ian that permeates the he character. He wants an equal, or even in some in some instances, subservient being to him. But yeah. he also wants it to be more powerful than he is. So he wants it to be tall, so it can't be looked down upon. It can't be because it's not a person to him. Right. But it is a. It is a. It is a protector. The protector he's not getting the protection he's not getting from right. his father. And in, in as his a viewpoint. within the function of the story, there are certain scenes that just would not have worked if Tallboy was the slender man esque um, child of bulbous headed schizophrenia from previous season. I literally was just thinking they're going to marry Slender Man with bulbous head, and it's going to be fucking creepy. I wanted that really, really badly. There were certain <laughs> scenes in the season that just would not have worked if he wasn't just a weird looking guy. If if the guy, if the people, if the detectives well, and, who are ridiculous, this is, these characters are caricatures yeah, yeah. of human beings. These are assholes. If they didn't, if they wouldn't have gotten the come up and scene of the 
they wouldn't have gotten the come up at scene of heckling tall boy for being a tall man in 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 fucking high high-waisted pants and pulled up socks if he was the the uh cryptid amalgamation that i imagined the first time he was described to me this season and the last season has not have not displayed very positive views of the police criticisms of of police can can often be very very valid but this season and last season they've both been played as caricatures and the character that tom played the the character that uh, uh brandon scott played last season you remember the scenes with him and his partner they were also they were so they were they yeah, were played they were for just... laughs and here the detectives are played very much as caricatures and i was just like is this going to be the theme now? Is that the police are police are not only useless, but they're but they're caricatures of people. They're not even they're not even really people. They're just caricatures. And I was kind of like, okay, yeah. well, you know, it's kind of it's it's moderately satisfying to see them killed. But then we're back to the same thing with the loan officer getting killed. So I was kind of like, yeah, eh, all right. I mean, the, the the violence is cool and all, but. You guys realize this is a little silly. I didn't even think the violence was all that cool with the with the caricatures of the police because, like you said, these aren't people. These aren't like these aren't actual representations of of police arrogance and authoritarian misuse of power. These are just <laughs> dicks, and these are these are these are people who have no reason to be dicks. The way that they treat Tom and Jill and the issues that they are in make no fucking yeah. sense at all. Like, they don't... This isn't how you approach these problems. And even if they were, why would it be coming from a, a four-foot-two blonde lady? They're not important to the story, and they end up being irritants more than anything else. They only really serve, they only really serve to set things up so that Ian can come back and say, did you really think... Oh wow, that entire that entire sequence is the is the setup for Ian showing up on the driveway. There's certain tropes that these writers enjoy and unfortunately what they consider funny ends up most of the time just being a waste. Like Ian's funny. Ian, Ian's funny in an effective way, I think. When Tom is waking up and Ian is eating, that whole exchange where Tom is just kind of like, "You went for drive-through," and and Ian's like, "I didn't get you anything. Sorry." <laughs> I was assuming you fucking. And, yes. I mean, that's... Their exchanges where Tom is the is the straight man to Ian's horseshit. Yeah, it is that that funny. actually worked. And there's a scene where. Where Jill is dealing dealing with false Tom, which is a, a creation of of Ian's, where Ooh. where Ooh. it starts off it, and it's believable initially because the last time we see Tom in that scene is okay. Let's let's take a brief detour into night and daylight before I talk about this. A significant chunk of the episode ends up happening during daylight hours. And there is some there is something to be said for daylight horror, for things happening in bright lights, where where bad things happen under the sun. There's something to be said for that because we're programmed mm -hmm. by horror. We're, we're programmed by horror films and horror television to 
and by human nature to be afraid of the dark you know it's and or, oh, or more accurately to be afraid of what's in the dark because dark darkness is yes yeah. it's it's a core fear of mine. It's one of the reasons the first episode was so effective for me personally is because I am absolutely terrified of the dark. It it triggers a freeze response in me personally. So that kind of subversion that where it's it's daylight has a lot of merit in surprising an audience member when done effectively. However, <laughs> both Pretzel Jack and Tallboy and the Cran crew, they lose something by being outside in the bright light because you can see every nook and cranny it's not there's something about the they they work more effectively in shadows in doors when in an enclosed space because they're inherently they've got they've got that uh um yeah so there's something of the uncanny valley with these characters yes and when they're fitting into spaces that are too small for them and they're just left of what a human should be because of the distortion created yeah. by the makeup. And when you look at them in the dark or in shadow or inside an, inside a room, that is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. But when they're outside in bright light... We get too much information. There's not enough left for us to to infer. Because we're, they're, they're there and... Every detail is is understood. My my eye knows what it's looking at, and it adds to the larger problem of at this point of the se- season. Jill is too powerful. She has too much power. I'm not afraid for her safety anymore. Not only does she have her puppy back, she's just she's as a character is extremely empowered. She's I believe that she's not gonna let Ian get away with this. And Tom's going to help her every step of the way. And Pretzel Jack's going to help her every step of the way. So when they fucking run down the street while Techno's playing, I'm just like, yeah, fuck them <laughs> up. By comparison, when when Margot was in a similar... I mean, she was way more of a damsel in distress than Jill ever was. But but her... her I'm blanking on my favorite character's name. Anyways, everybody knows who I'm talking about. My wife... When she comes rolling into town, I still fear for her because up until this point in this in that season, she has been shown to have crippling anxiety attacks. And we haven't we haven't they haven't established for the audience that that has gone away. We also see that she while she is able to face her her um her uh succubus bubble um it, it is it is a very large struggle for her. It's it's very difficult. So I I was still there was still a lot of tension in the last episode of No End House about whether or not our heroes were going to get out of out of there safely. But I mean, like putting it in the daytime, all of these choices for season for episode six of of Dream Tour, all of these choices eventually elevate Jill past me having to worry about her. And yet, oddly enough, even though we have built her up as being somebody who has been able to resurrect Pretzel Jack, who's been able to fight off uh, False Tom and and stand up and, and be this strong character, oddly enough, at the end, they get rid of Ian by stabbing him. I didn't get that! Like, 
He's fucking- The knife is in him! Why do they need to stab him a second time, and why does she need Tom to help her in a very awkward way? Like, it's a very awkward, let me lend you my strength. Because it's, it's, it's death by the power of love. I mean, it's, it's the family that slays together stays together. I mean, <laughs> isn't, that, is, isn't that how it goes, right? So I, yes, but it could have been handled. It it wasn't as effective. Yeah, I mean it's it's it was it, it was some really interesting choices. I mean, I I didn't I don't know. I mean, overall, it certainly was a stronger season than season three. I I think the first yes. three episodes were very effective in terms of of establishing a sense of dread, establishing a sense of horror. A lot of that had to do with the way it was shot. Again. It was beautifully composed shots. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the first half of the season, Pretzel Jack is a very scary character. Um, Leaving aside aside some of the story missteps, especially with with parts of of how Tom was dealt with. But but there's some real scary stuff in the first half of the season. And I think it was, it ended up, and, and, and even with the change of tone, and and the the sense of what kind of threat things are, it was a most mm-hmm. much more coherent story than season three. Yes, yes, but you can still see that these writers do have interest in in combining different genres together. They do want to explore stories that shift from one thing to another, and it's handled better than in season three but it's still there and while i i i commend them for for um kind of returning to form i don't you know i don't we don't know i haven't done the research into into what happened behind the scenes to give us the results that are season three and four but i i was relieved to find that they they still there's still the fuckers that I fell in love with. There's still the people that that are artistic visions of horror. They have art, artistic um, goals in in scaring the shit out of me, and they are able to tell a cohesive and and um, streamlined story. They're the same guys that that just want to play and in. in, in as many sandboxes as they can get their little fingers into. I understand that. It just, sometimes it is going to give us a, a, a softer story, like a, a, a story that ends with a tiny baby making a door for no reason. (laughs) When it comes to looking backwards though, what would you say, uh, what were your favorite seasons of, of, um, channel zero like if you had to rank them or rate them like what's the order for you in terms of in terms of story strength i would put no end house um uh candle cove dream door and then butcher's block because i mean certainly certainly the coherence and the story strength i mean season two really was for me the way that they played with themes of family and friendship and and Mm -hmm. the what what love means and and the concept of of psyche and horror and all these things I thought was really really strong in season yeah. two 
And then, of course, the yeah. uh, first season, just dealing with uh, a real sense of unease and this it's the the first two seasons are the scariest for me in terms of looking at treating yes. treating horror as an intelligent thing that we you know the, the writers were really very strong there and still having two seasons for that, all six episodes still having two seasons that were very different from each other i agree with that exact i agree with that exact numerology like it it goes no end house candle cove dream door butcher's block for me yeah, too i think that if we Whatever, wherever it goes from here, and again, hopefully there will be a season five. Um, I hope they continue to do this experimentation with storytelling, whether it's successful or not. For mm-hmm. all that season three had issues, they were trying to deal with some interesting things. Whether it was effective or not, we yeah. have opinions on. But yeah, and and we were, I was, I was especially harsh because it came from a place of of. You could do so much better. Exactly, but overall, when you look at you look at the writing, Nick uh, Antacosta and Nick Antosca um, has has written a significant chunk of the episodes of the show, and he, mm-hmm. you know, so if nothing else, there's a through line of a writer exploring concepts and uh, you know ex- playing with things in interesting ways and successful or not they're trying things and so i'm i for for a show that could a series that could have easily have gone off the rails in a lot of different ways long before a lot sooner um it's 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 been impressive i'm i'm pleased with what they've been doing overall and i'm curious to see where Mm -hmm. they go from here because it's um there's a huge i mean Creepypasta has got a huge, huge, huge number of stories to play with. There's, oh yeah, there's plenty of plenty of places they can. And go. there's a lot of ones that are going to be, um, are might be fun to read that would make terrible television. So hopefully they'll avoid those. <laughs> yeah, I um when it comes to, uh, being a fan of horror surrounded by people who aren't. Mm. Um, I still think that No End House is the strongest of, if, if I were to, if I were, and I will continue to be the person that, that sells this series, that champions this series, I'm going to, uh, tell people to watch No End House first, because I think that while it is extremely effective and it's horror, it's not so shit your pants as the first couple episodes of dream door are and candle cove is by itself candle cove is extremely horrific like teeth monster is goddamn nightmare nightmare (laughs) fuel as as absolutely terrifying as the allergic reaction that dad goes through in no end houses it is a human horror Mm -hmm. the giblets are also scary but they aren't as visceral as fucking clown running at you and teeth monster and, and, and children death, like death of children. That's heavy. Candle Cove is heavy. And, and on a, on a story as, as far as a story that is, is satisfying from beginning to end, no end house wins hands down because it has a fantastic ending. It has a fantastic character arcs for almost everybody involved. Even, even 
the um, TJ who is a throwaway bullshit piece of crap. He has he is used effectively within the narrative. Um, for for what it does, No End House is the the strongest in in taking the the toys that they're playing with and giving them a satisfying conclusion. The end of Candle Cove is eh. <laughs> Dream Door is, is, you know, as we've said, it has that shift and Baby at the end is like, uh. but I would, I would, I still absolutely love its exploration of, of a romantic relationship within this, fr- from these writers. We get a little bit of it in No End House, but this is a this is a, a couple we can actually root for. Hmm. Yeah, this isn't got this isn't a uh, a uh, alluded to lesbian couple and just straight up dysfunctional hetero couple. Um, and then Butcher's Block is uh, it's Butcher's Block. Well, and again, I, I will maintain it is a, it is an older woman. It is an older woman actress giving a wonderful performance and playing with taxidermy. <laughs> that has that going. Well, on. I, again, I think Butcher's Block's Butcher's Block's biggest crime is that it's overstuffed. There's too many. There's too many mm-hmm. things happening at once for the coherence that Candle Cove had, or the mm-hmm. the ability to take the time to explore characters that No End House had. Or the the inherent darkness of the first three episodes of Dream Door. They know how to they know how to write entertaining characters. Even even though I have issues with Butcher's Block, I loved the character moments. They find they find and direct their actors wonderfully. So yeah, that's that's our Channel Zero run until the show comes back. <laughs> Uh, hopefully it will, and we'll be able to talk more about it then. We will have to decide what we're going to deal with next. We have a lot of different options. Oh, we can go so many different directions. We'll have to figure out what those are going to be, because there's a huge wealth of horror out there. There's there's certainly creepypasta, there's horror novels, there's comics, there's movies, there's podcasts, there's all kinds of neat things. YouTube channels, games, on and on and on. Oh yeah, there's there's a YouTube series that, that you want us to look at. There's a couple of different podcasts we've both talked about. There's a lot of things that we get to play with. And that's the cool thing about this show, is that we can go anywhere we want with it. Because there's a world of horror out yeah. there, and... Because currently I'm reading like three different horror comics. Um, some of them are really, really interesting. And some of them are <laughs> not so interesting. Um, and oddly <laughs> enough, there's I think there's a place in here to look at some stuff that doesn't work. Yes. There's a few bad horror films I think we could actually talk about. But uh, some of them are very <laughs> popular. <clears throat> bad horror films. Ashamed of themselves, but uh, we will. We've got a lot of places we can go with this, and we will because we can. So, and I hope you guys follow along with us. I hope that you join us on this journey, or at least if uh, you're going back through our catalog and you've made it to this episode, hi. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed what we've done since now. Well, and if you have, we'd love to hear about it. And if you haven't, we'd love to hear about it. If you don't have to agree with us, and if you have a different opinion about what. This, you know, about Channel Zero, since we've been talking about this 
so far, if you think, if you loved season three, if you hated season four, if you hated, you know, whatever, you know, we'd love to hear from you guys. Come and school us. Yeah, come over to the Twitter. You can connect with us on Twitter, but you can also leave us comments on iTunes and podcast.com. And you have basically taken over the Twitter account, at least on, on to some degree, when you're doing the recapping what you're watching. Yes. Uh, which has been very entertaining for me, by the way. We were reading what you've been writing, so. Okay. I en- I've really enjoyed uh, live blogging. However, it means that it takes me about three hours to watch a single episode. Because <laughs> I have to pause because I type slowly. We would love to hear from you. And, of course, if you like the show, if you could share the show... Uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell the people who love horror, tell the people who don't love horror. We will happily bring more people into the fold of the dark and disturbing and monstrous because we find it entertaining. And there's something to be said for being scared in a cathartic way, which is kind of why horror is a big thing because... (laughs) I actually have a story about that. So after I I screamed at at Pretzel Jack... I, I told my, my roommate about it, this person who hates horror, and they're like, why would you want to have a panic attack watching a piece of media? And I was like, because it's fun. Yeah. So it's a, it's a positive human reaction sometimes. So we are happy to share that with you guys, and we hope you're enjoying listening to us because we're having fun talking about it. Oh, we certainly are. So we'll be back. We'll let you guys know on Twitter what we decide to do, and um, I hope you have a wonderfully horrible week. Family Movie Nightmares, produced by Nikki Cave and Timothy Harvey for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved.